Please open your Bibles to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9, I'll be reading verses 23 to 27 for our sermon text, after which uh, we will go on to read the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3. Luke 9, 23 to 27, followed by Philippians 3, 1 to 11. Again, this is the word of God. Jesus is with his disciples. They are at Caesarea Philippi, way up north, in Jesus' retirement ministry with the disciples. Verse 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now let's turn over to Paul's letter to the Philippian church, chapter 3, in which he writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Amen. 
Our Heavenly Father, we confess to you our dependence on your Holy Spirit to bring these words home to us in a way that is helpful to us and glorifying to you. We ask that you would do this now by the power and might of your Holy Spirit. Amen. It's only natural for us to shrink from suffering. We fear suffering. We steer clear of it whenever we can. The suffering of pain. The suffering of bad news. The suffering of conflict. The suffering of loss. Life, after all, is good, and we'd very much like it to stay good. Always. I certainly do. I want a good life for myself for my wife, for my family, for my friends. I want a good life for you, the Lord's Church, every one of you. I want you to enjoy the very best and happiest and most blessed life you can possibly have. But I also know this. The actual life experience of everyone united by faith to the Christ who suffered, that is, the Christ of Scripture, the Christ of Gethsemane and of Calvary. That life's occasionally going to take you through some very dark, painful valleys. And the Bible gets us ready for it, doesn't it? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So if you live your life in the family of God, in covenant with Jesus Christ, then you can't avoid suffering forever, much as you'd like to. You can't, and you won't. And this is very frankly because he loves you. He knows the plans he has for you. Plans to make something of you that you aren't quite yet. Providentially, you'll have some really, really bad days, bad weeks maybe, months, seasons, even bad years, says Solomon, the wisest of men, years of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Providentially, in some way far beyond our present ability to take it all in, this chastening of the sons and daughters of God is for our good. It's for our good. Think of the blacksmith. First the iron glows in the billowing heat of God's forge, and then he strikes. Under the blows of his hammer, he shapes us more perfectly for the use he has for us in his kingdom. His ends are good. The means he uses to achieve them are effective, but make no mistake, it's a perfectly horrible thing to have to experience. Painful, sometimes bewildering beyond words to express, but it's his way of conforming us to the image of the Son of Man who had to suffer many things and be rejected by men and be killed. And then, not before then, then to be raised up the third day. 
So we too may be abandoned, we may be left to die, or sometimes actively pursued by men who want to harm us, either physically or emotionally or legally or financially. Still, under those circumstances, resting in union with Christ, we overcome. We do. Either in time or in eternity, we do. We overcome because he did. But until that happy day, we carry these awful burdens on our shoulders, don't we? The burdens that come with following close to Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows. In verse 23, he calls these burdens a cross, the means of my own humiliation and death. Building on verse 22, our passage today gives us the doctrine of union with Christ in his sufferings. There are the headwaters of the Jordan River near Caesarea Philippi. Jesus had asked the twelve apostles two very simple, straightforward questions. First of all, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And then, who do you say that I am? Now, they'd been around, hadn't they? They'd been out on their own already, preaching the kingdom of God all through Galilee. They knew what people were saying. They'd considered all the popular opinions being circulated about his true identity. They'd taken into account all their personal, up-close experiences with him, all their options. And without hesitation, the jury comes back with their unanimous verdict. For all twelve of them, Peter answered, the Christ of God. That's who you are. Which is exactly right. In fact, as Matthew tells the story, Jesus then goes on to say, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You're exactly right. 100%. Now, I want you to keep a lid on it. I want you to say nothing more about it to anyone, not yet. Because people have this way of getting it all wrong. People have this way of shaping public events according to their own ideas, their own timelines. And there were some pretty extravagant ideas abroad in the world concerning the Messiah at this time. And in fact, there had been these strange ideas for years. There had been for centuries, and there continued to be for centuries to come. In Israel, those messianic hopes, Israel, uh, those messianic hopes lasted even longer than the nation did. The nation of Israel died within the lifespan of some of those standing there. A.D. 70, the leveling and burning of Jerusalem and its temple, not one stone left upon another, the last major uprising of a false messiah leading the Jews against Rome took place more than 50 years later, well into the 2nd century AD. False messiahs were still trying to bring on a new age of political freedom. And here in this century, 
on this continent, messianic hopes still linger on in American public life. For instance, it's not so much a president many Americans want, a chief executive carefully bound by the duties that are specified in and limited by the U.S. Constitution. If we're to believe the public opinion media, what Americans really want is a messiah. But not God's messiah. Already they're lining up the available candidates in search of a young, charismatic communicator worthy of our national adulation and worship, a messiah more to their own cultural tastes and preferences. Because, friends, Americans, by and large, have no idea what the person and work of God's one true Messiah really is. God's Messiah keeps God's law. And in so doing, he suffers many things, is rejected by men, and dies. The day is not far off. When these young men, empowered by the Holy Spirit, announce to the world the completed work of God's one true Messiah. That day's not far off, but it's not yet. First, he's got to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. That's what the threefold office of Messiah meant to Jesus. It meant suffering. And it clearly has some significant practical consequences for those resolved to follow him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is very difficult to do. Obviously, to say yes to Jesus Christ, actually to obey him, is regularly to say no to yourself. Not my will, but thine be done. The Christian life means the adoption of a daily lifestyle, not mere words, but consistent follow-through that makes camouflage impossible. If you follow Jesus Christ in a godless culture, you will stand out, friends. You will become a target. You may remember an image of gold 90 feet high that Nebuchadnezzar, nearly six centuries earlier, had set up on the plain of Jura rather early on in the Babylonian captivity of the Lord's people. That was a test of civic loyalty. And you may remember his official decree regarding the music. Wherever you are, whatever it is you're doing, when you hear the band start to play, you stop whatever it is you're doing and you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. For as long as you're living in Babylon, that's the public expectation. That's your civic duty. And apparently everyone else is doing it. Everyone else is just quietly going along with the program, except for these three stubborn, pesky Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They won't comply. They just won't. Under any circumstances. They won't. And there's no blending into the crowd when you're the only one still on your feet. 
And then today there's you. You honor the Lord. You keep his day holy. You look in some ways different from others around you. You dress differently, speak differently, certainly act differently. And the more that others get to know you, the more clear it becomes that this difference in your bearing, this difference in your way of thinking about things, it doesn't stem from some perverse willfulness on your part. It's not that you're just odd. It's not that you're being difficult or stubborn. Actually, it starts to look as though you're just being yourself. That you're perfectly comfortable having surrendered your will to the will of someone else. But whatever it is, whatever is behind it, you can be sure it's not going to be tolerated in this culture because obedience to Jesus Christ isn't going along quietly with the program. Yes to Jesus Christ means no to self. That's the price to be paid for covenant union with the suffering, dying Christ. But, oh, beloved, how richly he makes it up to you who follow him. Not one burning martyr from the pages of Mr. Fox's book ever came out a loser in the transaction. Certainly these men and women lost everything this world once had to offer them. All that went up in smoke for the sake of obedience to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. But stepping out of those momentary flames into the loving arms of your own dearly beloved long-awaited king, how exactly can we reckon that to be a loss? In suffering for Christ, he gains his soul she gains eternity. For whoever would save his soul will lose it, but whoever loses his soul for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? A preacher might be able to expand and elaborate on those very simple words of verses 24 and 25, but I could hardly make them any clearer, could I? Jesus said it best. He always says it best. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Covenant union with Christ in his sufferings saves you, the suffering believer, from eternal loss. Because he counts you to be his. He counts your sufferings to be his. Covenantally speaking, he and we are one. There's nothing meritorious in your suffering. There's nothing meritorious in my suffering as individuals. After all, we're sinners. In the big picture, why shouldn't sinners suffer? Now, the virtue of the arrangement is in the covenant union attained by grace through faith. The bride may still have to deal with the annoyance of the bee buzzing around aimlessly in her kitchen. But if that bee has already stung her husband and in his flesh lost its stinger, 
then that's all the power the bee has left in it, the power to annoy, to bother, to make a noise, but not to hurt. Christ's death on his cross became essentially the death of death. It is the death of death. So your cross and mine, those we take up and bear daily, become a mere annoyance to us. They're an annoyance, nothing more sinister than that, nothing more deadly, because in his death, death lost its sting. His suffering saves us, who by faith covenantally participate in it from eternal loss. His atoning death is the purchase price, the ransom he paid, in order to set us free from sin and guilt, which constitute the sting of death. But there's another dimension of that deliverance by the sufferings of Jesus Christ that perhaps we seldom consider. When we contemplate the eternal sufferings of hell, the sufferings of which the atoning blood of Jesus spares the believer, when we think of those sufferings, our minds naturally turn to the physical anguish of the worm that does not die, the flames that shall not be quenched or to the emotional anguish of the complete, irreparable, eternal loss of every comfortable thought, every comfortable word, every comfortable feeling, the loss, in other words, of all hope. And those sufferings are very real for the man or woman outside of Christ. But perhaps we don't often consider the unbearable shame of separation, from Christ and his vicarious sufferings for his people. The unbearable shame that mine should be a soul eternally perishing in hell. I who knew better. I who had the good news preached to me. But my mind and heart were somewhere else at the time. I who had faithful parents, faithful teachers to teach me. But I didn't listen to them. I who had a Bible in my house all those years and never once read it. Dear ones, to have Jesus Christ ashamed of us. It's another layer of eternal torment that we are spared, we who aren't ashamed of our suffering, dying Christ and his words. Of that coming day of judgment, he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We need to bring this to a close so let me sum up just a few key points. Jesus is the Christ of God, just as Simon Peter said. But he's an altogether different kind of Christ, a different kind of Messiah. Every passing generation, including our own, prefers to fashion their Messiahs after their own tastes. But Jesus is the Christ of God. He won't be fashioned by men. 
He didn't come to cater to our social or political whims. He came instead to accomplish the saving work the Father gave him to do. That's the work he begins to outline for us right here outside Caesarea Philippi. And certainly, it's going to transform human politics and military affairs. Certainly, it's going to affect human economies and all the other things men want to change, all the things men want to fix. But this Messiah is not going to start there. What's going to change the world, what's going to change the course of human history, is that this Messiah... God's Messiah came to suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and on the third day be raised to lay down his life a ransom for many. The Christ of God is the dying prophet relatively few would hear. He's the dying priest relatively few would trust. He's the dying king relatively few would receive. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In his very person, the kingdom of God has come. It's here. It's with us. It's among us. Today it is. Today it is. Repent, therefore, I beseech you, my friends, and believe the gospel.